0: We'll begin reading in verse 10 of chapter 1. I would really like to read all the way through chapter 4. That's what I'd like to do is read this as a unit. Um, I don't know about you, but when I got letters from family or friends, I usually don't read them a paragraph at a time and then uh, put it down and go and come back a week later and read another paragraph. I generally just read them. And yeah, I'd like to read a significant portion of this. but so we're going to satisfy ourselves with uh, verse 10 through verse 25 this morning. We are not going to get that far in the message, but uh, we need to get some of the context. And I'd like as I said, the preferred context is to read all the way through chapter 4, which we're going to be referencing quite extensively today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning verse 10 through verse 25. God's Word says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul. Or, I am of Apollos. Or, I am of Cephas. Or, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ, crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's go Lord in prayer together this morning as we continue our service. Well, this morning we break into the practical, if you will, although I think everything we've been studying so far in Corinthians has been very practical, um, aspects, the practical aspects of what Paul is writing the letter with the the motives there, the uh, occasion that required the letter to be written. He's going to break into it before we can get out of chapter 1. It isn't a singular thing that he wants to discuss, but a number of issues going on in this church. But above all of them rise this one that he must address right away if this is not properly dealt with and addressed, the other issues of the church will never be resolved. And it holds true to this day as well that if our churches and the church, capital C, the the universal church or the Catholic church, that if we do not have this area resolved, we will resolve few other issues. Although, what we hear in the Christian community today is quite the reverse, that we can join together in unity in many issues and never resolve the fundamental issues. And Paul has quite the opposite view of things, as we will see going to our text today. Before we get into it too far, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us, we do thank you for your word before us, for its Instruction, it's correction, for its rebuke. And Lord, let the sting of these words penetrate us today. or we willingly stand before you and invite your conviction. Invite your rebuke and correction. And pray that we might be instructed in righteousness and in truth. Lord, I do pray you might guard this time, that it might be of your spirit, that be true to your word. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. Having given us the name of Jesus Christ, in one form or another, extensively in the first ten verses. 10 times in 10 verses, there is no missing that Paul is preparing the way to deal with the issue at hand in the Corinthian church. And that issue was about contentions within the church, divisions within the church. Not that the church had divided itself by breaking off into other groups. They had not gotten that far they are still meeting together as a single church they are the church in corinth there is no other group out there calling them that themselves that and so while we look at the divisions going on they are going on within that church uh, in that community we are going to look at some of the not only what was being said that is in our passage here, but as we stretch into some of the later chapters of Corinthians, we find out some of the real issues that were involved in these divisions, these schisms, these tears, literally is what it refers to. There were tears in the church, that there were things being torn apart, um, that what should have been a consistent and strong uh, family was being strained and would, if it continued, would break apart. And Paul intercedes before it gets that far. and we're going to look at that process of intercession and of the demands that Paul makes of the Corinthians. They are founded certainly on the principles we've already studied in verses one through nine. We cannot miss the import of them, where he makes their case not isolated but tied to all the churches. That if we begin having schisms within a single church, we will begin having schisms within the church universal. Of course, 2000 years later, 1950 years later, we find that the church has seldom really listened to Paul. For we have in this day a multitude of church factions. Some that we may view historically as necessary, but I'm not so sure that in God's word such it would be the case. So we are going to take up this idea of the oneness of the Church of Jesus Christ. And so we begin with a very strong statement by Paul in verse ten. Now I plead with you. He's going to use this on several occasions in his writing. Uh, In the book of Philippians, he pleads with two ladies in the church that they get along. Won't you two just resolve this? And if you can't do it, let's bring in a third party and get this settled. He's going to plead for churches to pray for him. Essentially a very powerful statement of begging. He's going to beg them, please. And so he comes to them with this plea for them, please. Please. I beg you, I plead with you, you are my brethren, and again for the tenth time, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not by the name of Paul, not as a favor to me, he's not asking this and begging for this as a favor to himself, because that would only appeal to what? One-fourth of the church. One faction of the church says, we're a Paul yeah we're going to do this to please him no paul says i don't plead this in my name i don't plead this for my benefit i plead this in the name of jesus christ that that be your focal point that that be the motive of your unity is the person and work of our lord and savior jesus christ and it should be the demand of the unity within the church today of that same person That we have a oneness. And this oneness we're going to talk about a little bit because oneness can mean a lot of things. And we're going to discuss that because Paul uses several terms, different terms about this oneness. Let's read it in verse 10. It says, you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. You may be perfectly joined together. You may be the same mind and the same judgment. Do you get the idea? We have multiple references to this concept of ecclesiastical unity. And we're going to work our way through these because they all carry a little nuance to them. They all carry a a different facet of this concept of Christ that we are one. I'm not going to probably give them the time they deserve, but we're going to touch on each of these as we go through The next uh, three and a half chapters, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and the rest of chapter one, we're going to be touching on the different nuances of unity. Now, let's begin by using some of our English words and clarifying them because I'm going to be using them sometimes. They're going to seem like interchangeably on purpose, but I want you to recognize that they mean different things. There is a word here that talks about being uniform. Uniform. Uniform means that we should all look alike. We understand uniforms a little bit we We know that uh, um, the military wear uniforms and and some of you at your workplace have to have uniforms on um, so that you all have the same appearance, um, so sometimes we can designate where you. Work, And so if you go to the hospital, you have nurses in one kind of attire. You have the housekeepers in another kind of attire. So you can distinguish them. And so, but they are all uniforms. So all nurses should look kind of like this. Um, and we have those guidelines. And so uh, uniform means that we are going to have this identical look. We are going to be uniform. And that word is in this verse. That concept is there. There's another concept that we use can use in this respect, and that is uh, unanimity. Unanimity, and we use that word when we take a vote. It was unanimous. Unanimity is the is the idea of a unanimousness, that is, we are all the same thought that we all have chosen together. This, so we have, uh, and and you can I've already revealed that it's that same mindedness. We have the same opinion. We are unanimous in this. That, uh, we all agree. We all agree that this is the, the truth, that this is the best course of action, that, that we all agree that this person should be in this position. Uh, unanimity is that whole idea of the same opinion. The same thought. And that word's in here. Unity itself, um, which Paul's going to use later on much more. Um, the concept is here, but not the word. It's really going to be born out in chapter 12 when we get to talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And he talks about there is a great many gifts, but there's all for one. It's for one purpose. And it's that diversity that is in unity. That is, you have different roles, and yet you're all one body. And so you have this vari- variation among you But unity calls upon all that variety towards one purpose. So let's look at Paul's development of the idea that the church should be one. And I'm going to use a term that uh, is going to cause some ruffles, and that's okay, um, because some people have uh, taken that term and made it their own when it doesn't belong to them. And I'm going to use the word Catholic. Now, what does Catholic mean? It means universal. That's what it means. And so when we talk about the Catholic Church, you're talking about the universal church. And I'm going to be using that term very specifically to refer to that. Now what you come to your mind when you hear the word Catholic, unfortunately, is one church, the Roman church, has taken on that term. But it doesn't really belong to them. They can't decide who is the universal church. But it is a statement saying we are the universal church. The Roman church is the universal church. That is that we are the bride of Christ and no one else. It is exclusive in its very statement to take that upon an individual uh, group of churches. Um, So when I refer to the Catholic Church, I'm referring to all churches. In fact, we avoid using that very important word because of the mess that's out there because one group took it upon themselves. But we believe in the universal church. And I talked about unity, I talked about uniformity, I talked about unanimity, and so just to help us, universal. The universal, that we are one. And Paul's already developed the idea that there's a universality, there's a catholicness to our faith. And that is that it isn't just us in this room that are called to this kind of unity. It isn't even just those in our country or in our culture. We are called to be universal. And so Paul's already linked these Christians in Corinth to all other Christians. Just like all other Christians, if you recall back in verse 2, you've been called to be saints and and there's no distinction in, in, in God's eyes. Well, let's define what we mean by the universal church or the Catholic church. It is all those from, (laughs) here we go, even a bunch of dead people. All those from Pentecost to the rapture who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, confessing their sin, repenting of that, and trusting in Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Everyone who has done that is part of the universal church. There may be at various places in the development at, of their faith, but all who are genuine in that decision are part of the bride of Christ. Now, the genuineness of that decision should be borne out. It should be borne out in good doctrine and in righteous living that's why he says listen you are called to be saints or holy ones just like everyone who claims christ is called to be a holy one to be righteous and so we are told by james and, and the book of hebrews and many other places um, if you want to know the genuineness of your faith it needs to be born out in your Works in your acts of righteousness. But we're also called to be to truth. And so it's borne out in your uh, adherence to and your, uh, not just appreci- I appreciate that truth, but rather your conformity to that truth and knowing who truth is. The truth is Jesus Christ. is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I don't depend upon Christ just for life, but also for the way and the truth. And so this is the calling of paul that we be one not only within the context of this desert hills baptist church but of the catholic church that we be one that we be of one mind of one heart of one purpose of one person jesus christ we are the bride capital b so we are going to try to draw out these aspects and frankly, if you ever went through our doctrinal study at the end of the church, we talked about that we focus on unity in our church. We don't talk a lot about uniformity. We don't talk a lot about unanimity, although we do require it in our business meeting tonight. Um, if we don't get unanimity, we back up and we uh, rethink things and rework them over. Um, and so while we don't emphasize it in our church, um, maybe we need to. And so some of my study this week has been towards me and my philosophy of ministry a little bit more. Um, and, and frankly, we do pretty decent at understanding universality of our faith. Not that everyone gets saved, but everyone that is saved is our family. So let's look at Paul's command here. What does he do, want? What is it that he begs for in the name of Jesus Christ? Which means as Christ's representative to you, I am telling you what Christ is begging you to do and to be. Well, let's look at it. He begins, first of all, that you speak the same thing. And um, uh, translated in other uh, English translations a little bit differently, there's some variants here. Essentially, what he's saying is that you have a uniform Testimony. Give a uniform testimony that no matter where we go, the message is the same. So whether I go anywhere I go, any in the Christian community, the message is the same. Where the message is not the same, they are not of Christ's Church. We are commanded to have the same message, have this one singular testimony that is universal, that no matter where we go, we can see, here's Christ, and that Christ is the Son of God, and, and, and we talk about the, the, truths that you must hold to in the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, but that we declare Him, that our total dependence is there upon Him, that by faith we receive Him as Savior, having confessed and repented of our sins, and that we trust fully in Him, and that that is the testimony of all the universal church, and, and it ought to be that. And if we think that somehow we have the corner of the market on this testimony, we are in error. Or that we can tweak it to our interests. We are in error. Jesus Christ says, you should have a uniform testimony. You trust in Jesus Christ, having confessed you are a sinner, couldn't save yourself. Christ Jesus died for us, identifying who he is according to the truth of God's word. We are trusting fully in him, completely in him, 100% in him, with none of me being added into that equation. And there's this transformation that occurs by the power and work in Jesus Christ alone in me, whereby I am saved and I am now a holy one, and I am designed to live after that holiness um, with varying levels of success we should have a uniform testimony wherever we go i can I should be able to go to any culture um, and we have some represented here I should go and the idea of well this is the this is the um, Irish way to heaven. This is the Native American way to heaven. This is the Indian way to heaven. Eh, I meant people from India. This is the Haitian gospel. No. No such thing exists. There's not a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. There's not a Pauline gospel and a johannian gospel. And there are some people that come to God's word and say that Paul made up his own gospel and John has a very different view of the gospel and it's very different than Matthew's view of the gospel. No. They all have, and, and, and one of the things that's wonderful is that Peter references and says, you know, Paul has some hard things to say, but what he's saying is true. There's not a Petrine gospel and a Pauline gospel and an Ahanian gospel. It just doesn't exist. They are one. They are uniform. This is not a white man's religion or a black man's religion or a Jewish religion. It is God's. We have one message. It is uniform across all cultures because all men are sinners. (laughs) And there's only one Christ that can save them. And so this idea that we have the same, that we speak the same thing is essentially that we be uniform, identical in testimony. This is how we became the children of God. And if that testimony isn't identical, something is very wrong. Either you have meddled with the gospel, which by doing so you'll destroy it. You'll not have the power. And this is what Paul's going to bring out first and foremost. He's going to talk about the message of the cross in verse 18. First thing he's going to come up to is, listen, the message must be this. It isn't that... Did, did, did I die for you? Did Peter die for you? No! Christ died for you, and Christ alone. And our message is the message of the cross, and that is what we preach. And it must be uniform. There is no room for uniqueness in this category. Let me repeat that. There is no room in the kingdom of God for your unique message. You cannot make up your own gospel. The world desperately needs to understand that. Christian community desperately needs to understand that. You start tweaking and playing with the gospel message, you have destroyed it. It must be uniform. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand how our culture is. <laughs> I don't have to. And by the way, um, your argument isn't with pastor; it's with the all-knowing God of the universe. The fact is, every culture of man is antichrist. Every culture of man is antichrist. But that's why I continue keep calling us as a church to recognize that this is our own culture. It is a culture of Christ that permeates all cultures. And there should be, uh, particularly in this respect, to the message of the church needs to be absolute uniformity. It should look just alike. And When I hear people say, well, you know, Haitians, they don't respond to that. Well, do you think Americans do? Peruvians need this. No, they don't. We do not need to do anything to the gospel to accommodate any people group. Our message, our testimony is uniform. It is the same for all men, for all are sinners. All fall short of the glory of God. All are dying. Haitians don't die any different than Americans Might be skinnier when they die, but they die just the same. Their heart stops beating, their brain activity goes away, and they're dead. Because sin is universal, because death is universal, we know that there's really no difference. Brethren, in this area we must demand uniformity And what is the message that we speak. And when others want to play with that message and meddle with it, then Paul very clearly makes a statement in many passages of scripture that we separate from them for and identify them as false teachers. And here's what the church has misconceived unity because we have let the world define it. Well, we should all get along no matter what we believe. Wrong. (laughs) We should all get along because we've all conformed to the same message. You see, we have put unity in front and made it the... Wonder drug that we all want unity. Therefore, we should just overlook each other's differences. And the Bible does the reverse. It says, when you all conform to this one message, you will have unity. When you all recognize Christ as your Savior and his, that oneness of that person and work of, of our Savior and Lord, then unity will immediately be required of you. You see, uniformity precedes unity. We must all have one message, a uniform message that is the same for all men. And the day that someone says that Peruvians come to Christ differently than Americans or that Asians come to Christ differently than Europeans, throw up your hands and scream. Because we're meddling with the gospel. We have one message. I say, well, Paul seems pretty strong here, and so are are we all supposed to get along with all the other churches? No. We begin where he begins one uniform message. Paul in many places, including Corinthians, is going to tell us, watch out for wolves that will devour the flock. Watch out for false teachers. Be on the alert. And when you identify them, don't even try to bring them back into the fellowship. Separate them from your fellowship, and you separate your fellowship from them. Why? Because we have one message. We have one message. The Church universal, the Catholic Church, has a single message, and that message is the person, Jesus Christ. And if we have received Jesus Christ our Savior and, and have choosing to conform ourselves to Him and by this calling of God that we talked about last week, then we are the church universal, and we didn't become that because we wanted to, because we, we wanted to make it universal. We wanted unity. No, we become because we all conform to one message. We have a uniform testimony. And yes, uniformity will lead to unity. On some level, depending upon the degree to which you commit yourself to uniformity. I say that again, depending upon the degree to which you commit yourself to uniformity, you want to see a unit of the military that is one. You will see them uniform. Military understands that. Yeah, you know, take these guys from all over the country, all every different walk of life, every cu- different cultures. What are we going to do? We're going to dress them alike, make them eat alike, we're going to make them talk alike. we are going to say yes, sir, no, sir, sir, yes, sir, and we're going to make them also. There's no distinction between them. And then we're going to break them down and we're going to put them back together and they're going to be a unit. Yeah, fundamentally we understand uniformity precedes unity. Because we have surrendered ourselves and we have conformed ourselves to the singular message of Jesus Christ, which Paul's going to extensively described, we're going to take several weeks to talk about a uniform message. Um, we can now have unity. Let's go on to the verse. I'm not going to make it through if I don't keep pressing on. So we speak the same thing. We have one message, uniform message. This says that there be no divisions among you. And that is that we do not have dissension. We do not have, uh, I think some of your versions might have the word schism. Um, it is the opposite words I shared last week of the word fellowship and the verse before it. The verse was that fellowship with Christ. Therefore, there should be no broken fellowship among the universal church. Among those who are of Christ's name, there should be no brokenness in the fellowship. There should be no uh, uh, division. Uh, but it's the word division there isn't that, you know, you're over there and you're over there, but rather that there's just a strainedness there, that there is a, a break in the communion that we have one with another. And it's kind of interesting that this message comes up right before our business meeting and communion tonight. Um, but we ought to have this communion. There should be this sweetness about uh, the relationship between the universal church that while we can might have dissensions about uh, aspects of life around us that there is no break, there is no straining of the communion, the fellowship that we have with one another. How can this be? Well, because we have conformed ourselves to the singular message of Christ, we have humbled ourselves to it, then it becomes incumbent upon us to humble ourselves one to another, and I would contend with you that that is the necessary element of sweet communion is that we esteem others better than ourselves. If you walk into a room of people and you esteem them, you consider them better than yourself, you will have communion with them. And it will be sweet. If I come in and I have a chip on my shoulder, meaning something, what does that mean? It means... I have something against someone. Um, I feel I've been wrong. I feel I've been overlooked. I, 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 I. I will not have communion with people. I will not have fellowship with them. I'll have my arms crossed unless you're in India. When your arms are crossed, it just shows respect. All the kids did this to me. I I, I was like, boy, they've all got something against me. That's only in America. In India, that means I am attentively listening. You have my full attention. I'm not my fingers anywhere. I'm right here. Okay, We're, we don't have any contention. There's no s- division between us. There's no separation between us. I walk in, I, am, I have this attitude of heart and of mind that I'm esteeming them better than myself. Therefore, I have no qualms serving them. I have no qualms serving them getting down on their level um, uh, or up to their level in my mind. Uh, I have no qualms at all. Why? Because I'm not better than them. I was the worst of sinners, Paul says. I, I, I have no right to Christ. I'm the worst of sinners. And when you consider yourself the worst of sinners... It's not hard to esteem others better than yourself. The problem is we're sure that there are other people that are a lot worse sinners than me. And we look at them just like that. God calls us to something very different. So we are told that we are not to have any divisions among us. We are to, to have this communion. Again, it is not the communion that comes first. It is the conformity to the message, to the wisdom of God, to the salvation that comes first. Then there will be, should be, no divisions. Once we have the same testimony, we should have this communion, this fellowship. This concept's going to come out later on in Corinthians where it talks about there's no fellowship between Christ and Belial, between light and dark. So why are you trying to have this relationship um, of a yoke together with an unbeliever. Well, within the church, we've already conformed ourselves to a uniform message. Now, if we are consistent in living out that uniform message, we should have this communion or fellowship one with another. Here's another word that we want to press on to. You'll be perfectly joined together a uh, great uh, I, I really like this translation of that word um, it's, this word is used uh, two other places in your Bible uh, that we could probably make note of so you can get the fullness of this word I like how it's translated here perfectly joined together it's that whole idea that the ends match up and they, they connect Um, But let's look at where it's used and how it's used elsewhere. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is a great little place where that very word is used. Matthew 4 verse 21. It says, going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them. That's the end of the verse. Why would they end the verse that he called them? But I don't know. But that's what they did. You say, I'll see perfectly joined together in that verse. The word mending their net is the same identical word as what Paul uses of perfectly joined together. Mended nets. Now I'm going to come back there. Let's go to the other one. It's in First Thessalonians. So I go on the other side of 1 Corinthians. Hopefully, you're keeping yourself in First Corinthians. We'll get back there. First Thessalonians chapter three. It says, "Night and day," a verse ten. I'm sorry, chapter three, verse ten. First Thessalonians three ten. Again, the same word used, translated very differently. But night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. To perfect what is lacking. To complete it. Now having looked at those two ways of manners of using this word we see that from Paul's perspective we didn't come into this already perfectly united. We were not perfectly lined up. It is something that we need to work at. It is something that needs to be done within the community of Christ is that we perfectly line ourselves up that we knit ourselves together like a fishing net. And so you look at this net, and if you see a bunch of clump right here, well, something's wrong. you got a tangled mess. And what do we do? We go in there and we try to untangle it. When we can't do that, you cut some out and you put the ends together and you make it a nice net, or it doesn't work very well. If there's breaks open, if there's tears in it broken open, Fish can get through and it's not effective. Well, what do we do? We line up those ends and they sew them all. They don't just indiscriminately throw it together, but they line those up. And it was maybe more than 50% of a fisherman's job was on the shore making sure his nets are ready. This is not light duty. This is important. It was, it was vital to the success of what he was doing out there. And Paul says to Thessalonians, listen, it's vital that you be perfected together. In your faith. And Paul here tells the Corinthians, listen, this isn't something that you're going to ever accomplish and say, there, it's done. You're going to be constantly mending this. You need to be about the business of lining things up together. Of getting this end and this end and bring them together and match them up, perfectly knit them together together. So you'll be an effective agent of God on earth. Well, he's going to tell us how to do this. He's going to use two more words to help us figure out how we do this. But I want you to understand the concept is that what the church, universal, is to be about, part of our business, and I would contend should be a big part of our business, outside of reaching the loss for Christ. And if you look at the fishing illustration there, Um, The effectiveness, our ability to fish, be fishers of men, I believe, is directly linked to how much mending of the net we're doing at home, on the shore. What we are engaged in here, and what we ought to be engaged in with the universal church, is the mending of the nets. Line things up, perfectly knit them together so that we'll magnify our effectiveness out there. And frankly, with torn nets, we're not very good fishers of men. We give them a great excuse, a great escape route. When you guys can figure out what you believe, then come talk to me. Well, the church needs to be about that business, as Paul describes, of perfectly joining them together, of making, uh, of, of knitting ourselves in terms of unanimity. That we have the same opinion. And he's going to bring this out with these two words, the same opinion of mind and of judgment. We have the same mind. We are perfectly knitted in our mind. Our thinking is alike. And again, I believe that these are in order. (laughs) I don't believe he just randomly picked these out. I I believe by the Spirit of God, these are in their chronological order. That once we have conformed ourselves to a uniform message... And we have made it our own and I have subjected myself to it. And I walk now in this communion of fellowship with Christ and therefore fellowship with all that are His. And I have subordinated myself and esteemed others better than myself. Now I am of the right mind and I am of the right spirit to sit down with my brethren in the Lord and say, let's knit this thing. How do you understand it? How do you understand it? What does God say? Most of the divisions among men within the community, large community, beyond the universal church, it's the, the pseudo church, let's call it that, the universal church any inclusive pseudo church have been largely discussed as theological issues. And it's amazing that no one wants to discuss those. We refuse to knit our nets. Here's what we'd rather do. You keep your beliefs, I'll keep my beliefs, and let's just go down to the abortion clinic together and protest. And we'll be we'll have unity to the world. Do you really think the world is believes that? Do you think that's going to reach them? You keep your beliefs, I'll keep my beliefs, but let's all vote as a block. Is your voting record the evidence of unity in the church? Really? We can take issue after issue after issue and say, well, we can do this with them and we can do this with them. Really? I have to conclude the only way we can do that is if we compromise our uniform message. And as soon as I do that, it's no longer uniform. And I'm no longer Christ. We have, again, put the cart before the horse. We can cooperate. We can cooperate with this group and that group and that group. And we never sit down and say, let's sit down and mend our net. Because here's what happens when a bunch of theologians sit down to discuss theology. Nothing, because they don't ever do that. They don't. we will denigrate and we will isolate and we will separate, but we don't ever mend. We don't ever sit down and say, let's sit down and start matching these things up. Let's discuss this. let's, Let's engage in something here and try to develop ourselves, not with me coming with my agenda and you with your agenda, but rather we have the agenda of Christ and say, let us mend our nest to conform to the truth of God's word. Let's line these ends up and knit them together that we might be an effective body of Christ. Did Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ all preach something different? No. Did they preach differently? Certainly, they were different people. They had different personalities. Yes, Christ had his own personality. They were different. But their message was uniform. But the work of men has always been to conform ourselves to that truth. And it's an exasperating and tedious process that very few want to engage in anymore. When I confront pastors and say, I'd like to discuss well, I'm no theologian. I'm like, what are you doing here then? You're no theologian? Go talk to the seminary professors? Really? That's our answer? When God calls us that we be about the business of perfectly joining together the church, capital C. Well, that's ongoing work that we have to be engaged in to keep sharpening one another and and to conform ourselves more and more to the truth of God's Word, which is not dependent upon men, but men are dependent upon it. And once we come to that process of mending nets with this patient humility that says we have uniform message, now let's get our ends knit together and, and work so we'll be effective, we'll participate in that tedious process willingly, humbly, happily, and successfully. Two ways. Be of the same mind and the same judgment. We need to conform our thinking to God's word and the application of that thought to God's word. We need to think like God demands of us to think, which is always counterintuitive. Intuitive just means the way men think. It's going to be different than what. And this is what Paul wants to bear out. He says, listen, don't think like Greeks, don't think like Jews. Don't think like Americans. Will you please get rid of your American thinking and come to God's Word like a Christian? Recognize that the wisdom of God supersedes what men call wisdom. You're going to have to change your thinking, which shouldn't be a big issue because you already had to do that somewhere along the line to conform yourself to the uniform message of Christ. You had to change your thinking. You had to humble yourself to that at least. So now in knitting yourselves together, you're going to have to take your thinking and you're going to have to conform to Christ and realize and recognize, I'm not thinking about this, right? Because I'm thinking about it in the wisdom of man and the arrogance of my own heart. I have to subject myself to the truth of God's Word. And so our knitting together becomes... schismatic, it becomes uh, a time of turmoil because we're dealing with one group and, and with their opinions and arrogances, and we have another group with their opinions and arrogances, neither of which have fully humbled themselves to God's word, and so they're not willing to see the truth. They're only willing to try to promote their version of truth. But we have a uniform message. If the message is uniform, then whatever it is that's tearing the net is opposed to that message. So Paul says, get your thinking and then get your judgment. And thinking is, uh, is okay, I'm going to conform my thinking now. Judgment is the application of that to the issues. We finally get to the issues. You say, shouldn't we have been talking about the issues all along? No. We should have first of all said, Is your message the same as my message? Is our communion the same? Now, is our thinking conforming? And yes, you have to sit down and do hard work in hard theological sessions to get those. It is tedious. It is. Does anyone of you know how long the council and ISIA met? It wasn't for a weekend retreat. Over a year, just to figure out that Jesus Christ was God. A year to get those ends knit together. No, he didn't become God. No, He's not uh, God that took on flesh for a little bit. No, He was fully human and fully God. Um, he will uh, it, it took him a year to figure that stuff all out and to knit it together. Tedious work. And I find few in the re- leadership wise are interested in it. We are not knitting ourselves together, so we can never really come to the same judgments. You see, we want to come at this thing totally the other way. Well, we all feel the same thing about, about uh, evolution. We all feel the same way about evolution. It's horrific, it's terrible. Well, really? Do we? Because I've got to tell you, some religious communities, they, they have tried to take the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, and, and uh, if they can fiddle around with either one of them so they get along, they do it. Oh, certainly, Pastor, on abortion, we're all the same. Are we? Are we? Do you understand why a Roman is against abortion? because they believe that aborted babies go to hell. Do you believe that? Have we knit together our thinking? No. Yeah, we want to jump over to judgment and say all of our judgments are going to be the same. You can't back into this. You cannot do it. God calls us to conform ourselves first to the uniform message, and then out of that is born this wonderful fellowship of Christ. And then out of that we can, we can work tediously and, 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 and willingly though, with, with great humility and great love, because we have the uniform message and the, and the, and this wonderful communion, we can do this work, we really can, without yelling and stopping and, I didn't get my way, um, no, you know, we can do it, we can knit it together, really, the true church can. The pseudo church can't. Because they're not committed to the uniform message. And once we have those knit together, having having the same judgments, having those perfectly knit together judgments, um, isn't isn't just easy and just doesn't just automatically happen. There's still some work involved, but it's much simplified. If we have our nets sewn together in our thinking, we then can take our judgments and knit them together pretty quick. But it has to be continuously done. And so Paul describes this, and and uh, again he says, "Now I look at your church, and and I, it took me a lot of time to get to one verse. This is terrible. Um, it's not terrible. It's great stuff." Um, he comes to the Corinthian church, he says, you don't look at all like this. And it wasn't about, um, this wasn't about uh, anything different in their message. Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus all preach the same thing. Repent. Receive Christ Jesus your Savior. I mean, this was not um, based upon any of that. You know what the fundamental problem was? And it's still a problem today, and it's what I keep referencing throughout this message. The problem was their pride. Later on, in a few couple chapters from now, he's going to talk to them about their boasting. These statements, I am of Paul, I am of Christ, they weren't significant theologically, really. They were just statements of boast. And I've got to tell you, that that is the number one hindrance to unity. Even among those who stake claim to a uniform message, the tedious work is: I have to humble myself. I can't sit here and boast that I know this and I know that, and this is truth. And this, is, I, I'm not the discern, I'm not the decider, I'm not the end result of what is truth, God's word. The Spirit is the end. It is pure truth. And it is my endeavor, tediously, to seek it out and to conform myself to it more and more. And and the act of conformity is itself an act of movement of humility to say, I might not be perfectly right in this respect. And brethren, uh, in our study in First Corinthians... I've got to tell you, you're going to be just, you're going to, you're going to be offended. You're going to say, not me, and you're not going to cross your arms like an Indian. You're going to cross your arms like an American. Can't make me. Well, that's the problem in the universal church, too. We can't come to the table with our arms crossed and our lip jutted out looking for a fight. That's not the sweet communion that comes from conformity to a uniform message, is it? And hence we have huge divisions among the church today because men value, I think, sometimes the historical teaching instead of the one teaching of Scripture. We are called to something higher and better. And so for the next few weeks, you're going to hear us talk about unity. But this is the foundation of what those words mean to Paul. And we're not going to lose track of the order of them. And so today, we don't expect you to be one with our church until you have conformed yourself to the one message of Christ. We don't expect you to take communion with us tonight as a symbol of your communion with Christ if you haven't conformed yourself to the one message of Christ. We don't expect you to line up with your theologies with us until you have communion with Christ based upon the one message of Christ. In order, we expect you to take the same position as us on any issue of life until you've done the tedious work of dealing with conforming your mind to Christ built out of the sweet communion with Christ, developed from conforming yourself to the one message of Christ. Great verse. Why we don't have it memorized, I don't know. But for the church, one of the most powerful verses out there. The problem is we take the ideas of men and insert them, that somehow unity is above the message, that unity is more important than our theology, that unity is more important than our judgment, that unity is more important than communion, and it's not. It does not precede it. It follows them. When we are uniform, when we are unanimous, then we become unified.